Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Hopeless Romantic. As always, I am Austin Chant. I am Amanda Jean. And today we're here to talk about fantasy, which was a great prompt that we got uh, from Tracy on Twitter um, a couple weeks ago when we were going to do our Hopeless After Dark episode, and we decided that we could talk for a long time about it. It's not a segment, it's an episode. <laughs> yes, today we're going to talk about it for a long time. And specifically about the intersections of genre fantasy and genre romance, the difference between writing fantasy with romance in it and romance with fantasy in it, and things that really blur that line, as well as uh, the mystical world of fantasy and how many subgenres there are and how that intersects with romance and all that fun stuff. Yeah, and we're going to give you some examples, too. Amanda and I are both huge fantasy fans, and uh, I, for one, grew up on more fantasy than any other genre, like pure fantasy. I don't know about you. I didn't, actually. I, I grew up reading straight fiction and sci-fi and romance novels. <laughs> straight fiction. I know. Every time I say that, I'm like, I guess it would be literary or dramatic fiction, but like, eh. I did read some fantasy. My mom was a fantasy fan. She really liked feminist fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like your Ursula Le Guin's yeah, and Tamar she Pierce's. Loved, she loved some Mercedes Lackey. She loves yes. all that good business. Um, And I did not read it when I was growing up, just because I didn't. I read some. I ended up having this <laughs> teal deer brief love affair. Actually, I shouldn't say brief. That was ironic. I had this huge love affair with the Robin Hobb Elderlings verse, um, the Fits mm. and Fool novels that are... I thought I was done. She ended that series after uh, Fool's Fate, or so she said. And then <laughs> 10 years later, she's like, actually, I'm writing an entire new trilogy. And she oh, just shit. continues to drag me along. And I mention that because it is one of those things that manages to kind of somehow be LGBTQ rep but also not at all and i'm mad anyway my mysterious fantasy journey i was raised on dynamite jones another um mostly british children's literature that was fantasy jonathan stroud who wrote the bartimaeus trilogy was another of my big childhood faves and then i got really really into lord of the rings at about age eight when i was extremely too young to appreciate reading the lord of the rings but did anyway did anyway yeah i read lord of the rings i tried to read i read the hobbit when it was like assigned to me in grade school probably middle school and then i tried to read lord of the rings and went nope and then i tried to read it again when the first movie came out and i was about 14 one of the things that austin and i bond over in our deep and meaningful friendship our 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 partnership of nerds is that um, we are both really obsessed with the Lord of the Rings movies to this day. Oh, yeah. And we have a lot of, like, we we think, we, we discovered that we both wrote. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm pulling it out. I'm pulling this it out. This is one of the weirdest moments I've ever had with another human being. <laughs> I put this on the table for everyone to also enjoy. So we were talking, we were kind of admitting, you know, that we still have a lot of feelings about the Lord of the Rings films. And I was like, dude, you don't understand. It got to the point where I wrote a fic, uh, a fic about Haldir dying. And how tragic that moment yeah, was. Yeah, it was about, it was like this really just syrupy, like living in it character death. Legolas is like holding him in his arms as he dies. And like Hiss is like, I think I likened the breaking of dawn to the ringing of bells. It was really <laughs> bad. And I was like, that's how bad it got. And what did you say to me, Austin? I said in tones of horror, so did I. <laughs> it was worse, though. I wrote that same fic, except it was a song fic. <laughs> and you can't remember what song it was, which just plagues my whole existence. I really, my hope is that it was a song from the Lord of the Rings movies, which is like kind of the best <laughs> option. But I also did listen to Evanescence of that age, so... <laughs> 
there's a risk there. It could have been, it could have been may it be, and it also could have been, um. I hope it was may it be. Bring me to life. It probably wasn't that, because (laughs) that would be ironic. (laughs) In a bad way. Yeah. (laughs) Almost mocking. But yeah, we recently, uh, watched the, I bought the, because we both had, um, dvd copies of various extended versions and i was like fuck this my copy of return of the king's all jacked up i've had these since they came out i'm gonna buy the blu-ray editions of the extendeds and i did and so we watched fellowship ages ago and then i was like we need to schedule a time to watch two towers which is our favorite i believe is it i think it is i think having rewatched them fellowship is my favorite now because it doesn't have Gollum in it. <laughs> yeah, we Which really... is the winning factor. Gollum didn't age well, and on top of that... No. Like, God bless Andy Serkis, who is a very talented man, and they really did their best, but... uh, oh, I God. didn't like Gollum when I was, like, 10 years old, <laughs> and I sure as hell don't like him at 24. <laughs> let me tell you that. Uh, Gollum did give give us the boil and mash him, stick him in a stew, what's Tater's precious thing. That's true. It gave us that meme. That ancient meme. Anyway, we're big nerds. <laughs> we're big nerds. And we teared up a whole lot watching uh, Two Towers, even though we've seen it uh, 8 million times. But notably, here's a segue for you. One of the things I have never been impressed with in Lord of the Rings is the romance. Yeah. I like, I tolerate it better now. But as a kid, I was just like, oh my god. Anytime Aragorn and Arwen were on screen, I was like, I'm done with this. Yeah, one of the things we said to each other when during watching The Two Towers was like, I just want this, but gay. And it isn't even like, it wasn't like a, although, (laughs) you know what, that was what, (laughs) sorry, I just remembered what it spawned in me to do. We were both like, oh, I just want this, but gay. And we don't mean that we want to go read like Aragorn Legolas or whatever. Like we meant we wanted something as vast and epic as The Lord of the Rings. Yes. uh, But gay. Watching it and I was just overcome with how it kind of is gay. The Legolas Gimli friendship that just supersedes so much and is so important. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to go on AO3 and read Legolas Gimli. And I don't have like regrets per se, but it sure made me think a lot about dwarves with piercings. Hell yeah. Like, I was kind of into it. I was like, yeah, yeah. But uh, I just, it was, it yanked me out of the world of the Lord of the Rings and made me think, like, how did they do the, like, did they, there's not like a dwarven, like, piercer. Of course there is. (laughs) You know, that's true. Of course there is. They specialize in so many things. There's gotta be. They're super punk. They're, they're in Moria, just like dyeing their hair wacky colors and getting... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All kinds of cool cartilage piercings. You know what? I buy that. I buy that. That's a great interpretation of the canon. Anyway, my god, this episode <laughs> has been just immediately derailed by any time I mention Lord of the Rings. Yeah, we, we've had really long conversations about Lord of the Rings and its existence in our lives. Yeah, been, it's been one of, those, one of those fandoms that I'm just like, oh yeah, that was so uh, t- 16 years ago in my life and then it's like no it's now it's now it's, it's never forever. left you as like I, I was listening to the um first soundtrack when i was trying to edit i was editing just like werewolf porn and i was i was like crying yep <laughs> it was the the Kazadum like sequence Ugh. it was the boys choir hitting those high notes after gandalf's uh. death death in quotation marks. And I was I was crying a whole lot. I was like, oh God, I'm this person in 2017. Anyway. As as Gandalf would say, fly, you, you fools, fools, away from this topic. <sighs> into the rest of the episode. So, Lord of the Rings is a great example of high fantasy. 
Tolkien really, he really set the stage for a lot of rote fantasy that came after it. I was going to say no fault to him, but like entire fault to him. I will blame Tolkien. So Amanda, what's high fantasy? Oh yeah. See, you're getting (laughs) down into the things that we said we were going to do and I just marched all over. (laughs) Um, High fantasy. um, I feel like a lot of people, if they hear the terms high and low fantasy can kind of take a stab at defining it. But I, I did a lot of research y'all. I went above and beyond my own preconceived notions of what high and low fantasy are. And I, I found um, of all places, wiki had the best breakdown of the two. Of course. Again, like, how would I function without Wikipedia? And they uh, quoted Nikki Gamble in her explication of the three characteristics of high fantasy. And basically what it comes down to is that um, high fantasy is stories where The fantastical elements are not questioned as being fantastical. If there's dragons, if there's orcs, if there's magical powers, that's imbued into the landscape of the universe. Um, Even if it's like alternate earth or whatever, like that is part of the world. Low fantasy tends to encompass stuff where the world is unusual. Um, That's where you get a lot of urban fantasy, where in in a modern everyday setting, fantastical things happen, whether it's vampires, fairies, or somebody discovers that they have magical powers and are going to a magical institute to learn about them. So low fantasy tends to be more accessible in some ways than high fantasy because high fantasy tends to be bloated. (laughs) Yeah, well, and because I would say there are even examples where low fantasy is a different world, but it has no magic or it's otherwise made more immediately kind of explicable yeah. to the reader. Like I would take Captive Prince as an example. Yeah, because it's a, a completely alternate world. Yeah, it's not really, there's no magic in Captive Prince. It's not like, it's just a different world than the one we live in, but the, it's a world that is heavily, clearly based on our world, based on like Greece and France mm-hmm. at a certain period of history. So it's not, it doesn't require a ton of extra world building. It has some, but you you don't need to do the whole, like, fantasy, like, here's a whole new list of nouns that you need to learn. Yeah, there's no glossary. Actually, I think there is a glossary attached to Captain Prince. I'm sure there is, but, like, it doesn't need to include, you know, these are the ten schools of magic, and this is the (laughs) history of the ten ages of the dragons, and blah blah blah. Yeah, there's less italicized prologue. There are no, like, actual living gods, there are no mythical beasts, etc. It's just uh, allusions to historical, completely separate world from ours. Fantasy? Fantasy. Fantasy. And I would argue that I see low fantasy being more common and more popular in romance. Yeah, And a big part of that is probably the fact that not having to do so much world building makes it a lot easier to focus on character relationships and sort of small scale stuff. And another big thing, um, I've had a lot of discussions with authors about this when they write fantasy or speculative fiction is that they tend to be they tend to run long, they tend to run long because you're building a world, especially if it's high fantasy, you're building an entire world with its its own systems and government and belief systems and whatever else. And that can get lengthy fast. And one of the things about romance is that we have all sort of unanimously (laughs) agreed that romance uh, novels are somewhere between 40 and like 100 and 
100k 120k and anything longer than that will get a lot of reviews where they're like this is really long this is mm-hmm. unusual you don't see um a ton of romance especially contemporary popular romance being that lengthy you do see it some in um historical and a lot of historical harlequins can get a little bit bulky but generally speaking that is one of the biggest things standing in the way of writing really high fantasy that is also queer rom they don't our genre our industry does not tend to embrace super long books i will say <laughs> when i was looking at a list of um queer romance uh fantasy on goodreads or wherever i was looking one of the outliers there was megan durr <laughs> right yeah her prisoners uh her book prisoner i believe is 200k damn she went hard on that she went ham actually one of the running jokes when i added her uh is that people are critical of her over description usually of outfits or of um Food, especially food. She's a big foodie and she describes things really well. She gets a lot of people being like, this is really great, but you spend a whole lot of time describing their outfits and their food and stuff. Maybe you could have cut that. And she's, she tries really hard. She's like, I didn't describe all the food. And I'm going there like, hey, but what are they eating? What do they eat here? And she's like, Amanda, if I get comments <laughs> saying that Megan Terror once again over described the food, I'm sending them directly to your inbox. Uh, yeah, she was an outlier. There were a couple people who were outliers, but for the most part, the um, popular fantasy stories in queer romance tend to be fairly brisk. They tend to be fast-paced and not be super long. Or if they are long, they tend to be a trilogy or a series. I get that, and I also I feel that as somebody who you know likes to be able to finish books quickly. I and I get why it's a convention of the romance genre, but it's also kind of a shame because, as we've talked about before. Romance, queer romance, is a genre where a lot of queer fiction can get published that couldn't get published elsewhere because it's queer. Yeah. And then you have a genre that is still very hostile or at least disinterested to, like, queer epic fantasy, which means you don't get that, like, gay Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you don't. And then when it does exist, you know, it gets it gets shopped around and it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be as likely to be published by a lot of the queer presses because one, it's frankly an expense. It's cost more to print bigger books. It, it costs more to edit bigger books. <laughs> and if the industry is not prone to reading bigger books, like you, you, you're looking at your cost benefit analysis going, maybe we won't recoup as much money on this as we would like. So I totally get it, but. And you have a genre that where romance tends to prize authors writing very fast and putting out a lot of books per year, especially mm-hmm. if they're doing it full time. And so writing your 400,000 word epic is, you know, if you could write eight books in that time and get paid for all of them as opposed to writing one book. That might not sell that well. That one might not sell. That's a huge just sort of monetary disincentive to write queer epic fantasy. And there are people who do it. I, Jen Hale was the first one that came to mind in terms of writing quite long, very um, high or at least mid to high fantasy that published in series format. But that's sort of where she's made her niche. She tends to write a lot of fantasy. If you're looking at a lot of authors in this industry, quite a few of them are known for contemporary or they're known for urban fantasy. Um, if they took off, let's say, a year <laughs> to write their 400,000 word <laughs> epic, they would be risking their existing audience and their existing um, reputation. And their paychecks. And their paychecks, most, yeah. Most, perhaps most importantly. Yeah. <laughs> to be real. <laughs> to be real, yeah. 
One of the things about fantasy as a broader genre looking outside of queer romance is that it has often been a home, uh, fantasy and speculative fiction in general, including sci-fi and stuff, it's been a home for fiction that is queerer than mainstream fiction, mainstream popular fiction, where people like Mercedes Lackey and Tanya Huff and others like them wrote uh, either ambiguous or overtly queer characters. Um, one of my examples is Ellen Kushner's Swords Point, which did well as sort of a mainstream fantasy novel, but was definitely very queer. Mm-hmm. And it's other works in that verse, like Tremontaine, which we had uh, Rosaline Maltese on to talk about. Uh, she's one of the writers on that. And it's a serial, which is really interesting. <laughs> that one continues to be aggressively queer. And so it's interesting seeing like fantasy has laid a lot of groundwork for queer work or characters with how do I put this it's laid a lot of groundwork for characters who may be in a queer romance but it's certainly not queer romance first yeah and that's what's so interesting to look at it in that reverse like we're looking at fantasy through the lens of queer romance as a subgenre to romance rather than like fantasy that maybe has queer characters in it or might actually have a queer relationship that's a romance in it that ends happily because <laughs> fantasy is not it's not beholden to happily ever after or happily for exactly now. and i think that's that's one of the really interesting things when you get works that straddle the line where they are neither first or second or they're much closer to balanced something like uh i'm thinking of kj charles here in the charm of magpie series that is very much mystery very much fantasy very much historical and very much romance. It is definitely structured as romance, but it's also structured like mystery. It doesn't really sacrifice any of them. It's it's fairly easily straddling multiple worlds, which is one of my favorite things as a reader in this genre is is people who have um, a deft way of handling subgenres and living in that Venn diagram of all of them. Actually, in terms of more mainstream fantasy, one of the series that managed to, I think, portray... Uh, fantasy as half and half with queer romance over its length is the Night Runner series by Lynn Flewelling. I hope mm-hmm. I said that right. Flewelling. <laughs> I don't know how many books that thing's into or if it's over because I actually kind of trailed off of reading it because I was getting it in paperback or borrowing somebody's and there's a lot of them. And that romance is a slow burn and a slow build for I think the first two books. And then it's is finally... Is that the... What's it called? The... Luck in the something? Shadows. Luck in the Shadows. Yeah. I literally tried a Kindle sample of that last night. <laughs> it's actually did not like it. I liked it. Um, but again, when I started reading the Night Runner series, it was before queer romance had dominated as its own entity. Um, I don't remember when Luck in the Shadows was published, but a while back. I, I would say that it fits in more with um, some of the Tanya Huff and um, uh, Mercedes Lackey. Like that yeah. is the era it came from. It was it influenced feels like by that. that. Vein. Yeah, and it's it's quite good. The other thing I would say about that is that the thing about like Mercedes Lackey and uh, Luck in the Shadows is that they're written like fantasy. They're not written like romance, yeah. which I think is an interesting distinction to get into. Yeah. That's part of the reason I couldn't get into Luck in the Shadows is that as somebody who is a, a very straightforward reader who, who <laughs> likes short sentences um, and prizes readability, I find a lot of especially older fantasy pretty alienating and hard to get into. I've heard that a lot. I've heard that a lot. And it's one of the reasons why when I was younger, I didn't read a lot of fantasy. And that's such a thing with romance, too. Like, romance is expected to be written in a very, very readable way. Mm -hmm. um, And not sort of given to big flourishes. And if it does, like, it had better have 
a hell of a justification for it, you know, whereas that's a lot more standard for fantasy and sci-fi. Um, I think some of that comes from a lot of the lambasting that romance has seen for being too filled with purple prose and filler and mm-hmm. being kind of grandiose. And I remember reading a lot of het romance when I was younger that was quite thick and it was it was quite a, a lot of like historical att- attempts at kind of mimicking a historical voice, but a lot of it was lurid purple prose. And there's nothing really wrong with that. It got lambasted a lot for it. And I think that led to an economy in the genre and it also... Um, was distinct for a lot of historical only. I'm trying to think, is it, would het romance have really had a huge subset of fantasy? I guess it would, but it would be like time travel or like fucking um, dragons maybe. It's not usually, it's usually more historical fantasy than anything else. It's not usually like sword and sorcery. Yeah, except for urban fantasy and paranormal. Mm-hmm. And urban fantasy is huge in both het and queer romance and YA and all sorts of stuff. That was part of our inspiration for talking about high fantasy because one of our Twitter questions from Firefly Hearts was, there's a lot of shifter and urban fantasy out there. Why are there not more gay elves? <laughs> Which I feel you, but I we think we started talking elves. about... But there is a lot of, there's lots of shifter stuff. There's a lot of, lots of vampires. So many vampires. Lots of dragons. Lots of dragons. Which I guess count as shifters, kind of. I feel like there are more gay dragons than there are straight dragons, in fact. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of gay dragons. I don't know what it is with us. <laughs> We're we really love a dragon. dragons. <laughs> LT3 had a dragon call, and I was like, more dragons! <laughs> <laughs> Here they come. Here they are. I hear the flapping of wings. And I, I feel like that is a big part of it, is the, the lesser world building... Not even, not lesser not in lesser. terms of, like, not bad. World building that is more clearly based on our world, so everything is sort of more directly reactive to contemporary society. Like, if you have vampires, what is the policy on vampires in the United States in the year 2016? Yeah. Or whatever. And it's less like you're having to establish languages and geography. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're not making up any languages. You're not composing the Silmarillion. <laughs> I had a really interesting thing when I was looking up various subgenres to sort of say, what do I want to talk about? And one of them I noticed that tends to get a lot of play in queer romance is gas lamp fantasy. Mm-hmm. And that's um, fantasy that's historical. It's set during the Victorian and Edwardian eras. And it's kind of similar to steampunk, except steampunk is more focused on um, tech and science. I found that that is something that ends up being really popular in queer romance because it's K.J. Charles's uh, The Charm of Magpie, ser- Magpie series, and it also is uh, Jordan L. Hawk's Wyborn and Griffin series. And in terms of broader fiction, it's stuff like Cassandra Clare's Infernal Devices and Naomi Novik and a whole bunch of people. And uh, I love Gaslamp. I was thinking about that. Like, if I had to really nail down a genre that I love the most, it would be Gaslamp. But it's also, it's so close to historical. It is historical fantasy that also manages to include magic of some kind. Is that popularity because it's set in a world we're already familiar with? Because sword and sorcery is not super popular and, and, you know, super high, like, Tolkien-influenced high fantasy. Super high. Super high. <laughs> Lots of stoned hobbits. They, it isn't Cannon. as popular. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, quest stories are not super popular. 
in um, yeah. in queer romance. And I wonder why that is because a quest story is usually like one of the most exciting um, format because it is kind of predictable. Like, you know what's going to happen, but that's true of so many genres. <laughs> that's fairly true of romance. I'll just put <laughs> it out know. there. I'm, I was going through and, and reading examples, and most of the most of the ones that were popular were gas lamp, steampunk, historical, and then some of them were alternate. Uh, oh, and then urban, obviously shifters, vampires, that sort of thing. But if we discount a lot of the urban fantasy that tends to be of the shifter ilk, it's really a lot of gas lamp, steampunk, and um, alternate historical timeline stuff, which I thought was fascinating. I wish we had more quest stories too because i i feel like that's such a great natural pairing with a romance plot and that's what a lot of i think queer fantasy readers would be really into is the like you know the epic heroes on a journey who also kiss i would argue that you could read like captive prince as a quest story so clearly that yeah, is something you could... that people are hungry for it's sort of an obscured quest but it's got that kind of underlying, you know, like our company that is on this mission. There's an element in fantasy that that pops up a lot and it's like tactical strategic stuff because mm-hmm. um, there's usually like really high stakes in fantasy and, and frequently it's like a kingdom's at risk and that happens in Captive Prince and it's yeah. hard to do well and it's hard to do in surprising ways. It's it's hard to orchestrate and pull off twists. I know that M. Night Shyamalan gets a lot of flack for having twists that after a certain point you know reach levels of ridiculousness or people don't like them or they see them coming or whatever but the really strong ones like i think six sense is maybe his strongest they are hard to achieve without completely telegraphing them and they are really hard to achieve when you're also doing a romance storyline or you're also doing like a mystery whodunit storyline really hard to do that on a logistical level and do it well i was gonna say it's, it's also hard to do that in a cramped space so you kind of if you want to do something on the scale of captive prince you can't do it in one book no (laughs) you need a trilogy or at least like a duology and again that gets into the the question of like is this gonna sell am i gonna write a story that you know i have to write two books of and what if the first one is a flop and i'm locked into Uh, yeah and i have so little money because i'm a queer romance author (laughs) so (laughs) god what if oh can you imagine self-publishing high fantasy i know it happens i see it happen but what a brutal load to take onto yourself because you're paying for everything and hoping that it sells and Mm -hmm. gives you the dividends to pay for the book itself yeah like on a personal note that's why the the serial that i've mentioned a couple times that i'm working on is going to be high fantasy and that's why it's going to be a serial. Yeah. <laughs> Not something that I try to publish anywhere in books. I mean, there are other reasons too, but that's a big one. It's something I want to do. It's something I believe people are interested in. Yeah. But God, I pub- trying to publish it in volumes alone would be a nightmare. Hey, I feel like we're going to have, um, spoiler alert, we're going to have Jen Hale on soon for a segment of an upcoming episode. And Jen Hale wrote the Rifter series, which I don't remember the final word count for, but it's, I want to say it's like a million. Um, Dang. And she, she split it up over 13 books and it's kind of uh, serialized in the way that it's split up. And I, and I want to ask her about that because that's a gamble. Like she sat down and wrote, you know, 13 books or a million words or whatever, you know, yeah. whatever the, t- the tally was that's impressive. 
And how did that work? How did that, did she lose faith in the middle of it? Did she go, you know what? Maybe this isn't the thing that you expect to see. And, and, and that's the thing too, is like, does Jen Hale consider herself a queer romance author? Or does she consider herself an author of queer speculative fiction? Because I think that therein lies a very, you know, important distinction. Yeah, it, that actually kind of leads me to one of our other questions from Twitter that I thought was very astute. This is from Charmed Ward. Do you think there's an unspoken limit on how many LGBT characters uh, writers can get away with in a story that's primarily fantasy versus actual queer romance? So something that would be published, something that would be published as straight fantasy, yeah. As a writer, it feels like having a cast with three LGBT main characters is a hindrance to all but gay romance publishers. Even there, frankly, since you don't know... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> We're good even on the outtakes. Even today. in queer romance, it would be hard to have three because they tend to center around two people, unless it was a poly novel. I think that is absolutely true. I think there is absolutely an unspoken limit on how queer a story can be in fantasy and be mainstream fantasy. Their, their sexuality is ambiguous, and if you count that as queer, and also if they're the main characters or like the B plot. If you have three side characters who are queer, like I don't see that happening a ton. And also, like, what kind of queer are we talking, I think is also important here. Mm -hmm. Like, Gender are we talking, identity. like, have you ever seen a trans character who was the protagonist of a mainstream fantasy novel? Uh, have you? <laughs> was it Probably like, not. Was it Own Voices? Probably not. Probably not. The fantasy that um, I talked about earlier is having queer rep in it um that was sort of marketed to mainstream readers is like a lot of the times what fantasy does is it takes um representation and plucks it out of context like if you're writing a fantasy novel and you're like also this race of elves are all trans is like what does that mean did you mm -hmm. fuck something up along the way <laughs> what does the gender binary mean in this fantasy context yeah as of the time of recording this yesterday was the um monthly queer spec chat on twitter which is really cool you should check it out next month um it's run by queership it was really cool and one of the things that we talked about was sort of metaphors for queer experiences that are taken away from actual queer people here is here are, here are the queer aliens or elves or whatever and then there are all the humans who are naturally all straight allosexual and they might be homophobic or they might be <laughs> yeah yeah it's like so you you reduce the experience of marginalized humans to a metaphor that can be plucked and put onto someone non-human and something you also see happen a lot with race in really gross ways lord of the rings is unfortunately a unfortunately a huge of propagator of, of it yeah. another example of that would be warcraft you can look at tons and tons of fantasy that does this even you know something like Dungeons and Dragons, especially earlier versions, you have like, these are the different species of elves. They have different skin colors. All of the wood elves have this skin color. All of the dark elves have this skin color. And it's like, there's some weird stuff going on here where traits that actually exist all in humans who are quite diverse in the real world, humans wind up being kind of flattened into this one species of white cis dudes, <laughs> basically. <laughs> While everybody else gets to be not human. Yeah. 
I mean, it says a lot. Um, even if you're trying to, to tell a story about like, this is why this is bad. If you've cast all of your oppressed race as people of color or as trans people or whatever the situation is, like you've dehumanized them. <laughs> you're inherently yeah. saying that um, people of color are orcs or not human or yeah. trans people are not human. And it's like, even with the best of intentions, <laughs> it's so common. It's so, it's so common. common. And it's, it's just like, the very premise of it is so bad. It's like um, another example of that is uh, the werewolves in Harry Potter as an AIDS metaphor. Yeah, as a huge I don't remember metaphor. if we've talked about that on the podcast before. I don't think so. It's so unfortunate because it like, again, it comes with the best of intentions. I was just rereading. I actually just reread The Prisoner of Azkaban today. I this didn't this went way over my head as a kid, but there's all this stuff about how Lupin leaves his job at the end because the parents have found out that he's a werewolf and they're yeah. about to start sending letters demanding that a werewolf not teach their children. There's all this stuff about how he could infect other people. And then, of course, in Deathly Hollows, someone is like forcibly bitten. Like there's mm -hmm. another bad werewolf whose whole thing is that he like bites people and gives them lycanthropy. It's this very like predatory thing. And that's an example of where like the the representation of someone who has been wrongfully forced out of their job because of a perceived stigma is being conflated with the idea that that person could actually turn into a wolf and kill their students. Yeah, because they're actually, I mean, I, as in as much as I feel a lot of empathy for Lupin and think that what happened to him was awful, I'm also like, yeah, if he didn't have his potion, he would turn into a wolf every month that would straight up just murder folks. If you have a teacher who is HIV positive, like, there's no equivalent to that. If they don't have antivirals or something, they're not going to snap, like, yeah. infect their student. There's yeah. no equivalent to that. So, it makes Soapbox of the day. Think twice before you're like, I'm going to tell a story about prejudice, <laughs> wherein gay people are all murderers. <laughs> and it's wrong to discriminate against murderers. <laughs> yeah, just because they drink the blood of the living, much like gays in reality. <laughs> One of the things you and I have talked about a lot of in terms of dissecting some of the pitfalls of fantasy, and like I always think that speculative fiction is a great playground for social commentary, and it has been for many years. It's just that these particular elements tend to pop up. But one of the things that kind of bothers me is like, why do you go, especially in high fantasy, why do you go through the, the rigmarole and the, the hard work and the sweat and tears of creating an entirely new universe with like dragons and shit in it? And you're also like, you know what we need? A Depression. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. You know, it needs to exist in space homophobia <laughs> we yeah. need racism and actually um i've talked about this before but i have a project that's a fantasy story and i was creating it and i had done all the world building and i had like really set up a system i was happy with and then i started sitting down and going what the fuck did i just do i wrote like some gender essentialist bullshit with these inherited systems of oppression and i didn't need to do that there's no reason to do that i don't need to to lift these things up and and perpetuate them in my fantasy story which is essentially like a romp and escapism. I'm writing this ostensibly for queer audiences or ally audiences. And it's like, do I need to write this? Do I need to set my characters up for the same indignities and hurt that they experience in real life? Nah. So I got to sit down and figure out that whole thing again. It's one of those things that like, it sucks in fantasy and it, it's it like straight up genre fantasy. And it also, it, I think it's even more glaring sometimes in 
romance with fantasy elements because romance is so focused on character relationships. Sci-fi is arguably even almost worse. Yeah. Because it'll be like, it's space 500 years from now, but don't worry, um, sexism is exactly the same. The gender binary hasn't changed, and apparently trans people just sort of stop. Or they ha- they now have magical space, like, medical transition. But even then, where are the non-binary people? Exactly. You know? like, there's absolutely nothing of the diversity of the world and human experience as we see it now, unless it's aliens. Yeah. Aliens got that whole thing unlocked. But again, like, frequently there'll be aliens with a gender binary. Yeah, that's And too. I'm like, they're cat people, or, like, they're lizard people. And they're real fucking, like, uh, uh, I'm gonna... But don't worry, don't worry. Some of the lizards have boobs. <laughs> they're sexy lizards. The ladies are sexy lizards with titties. Yep. I'm, this is a quick sidebar. Um, Mass Effect Andromeda, which I will not spoil for Austin because he has not played it, and I will not spoil for our listeners, but there's um, there was a lot of blowback from uh, players who did not think that there were enough queer romance options for the male protagonist. There were two, and I believe they were not party members. Everyone was like, hey, you can have it be a party member and you can have it be this um, species of alien. Why didn't why didn't they do that to begin with? Because one, it's space. There's aliens. <laughs> like We've got other shit to deal with than the gender binary. The aliens are looking at humans and being like, what the fuck are you? I really doubt that what's gonna, what's gonna hold them up are humans ideas of um the gender binary and genitals i really don't think that's where that line is going to come for them it had to occur like it had to be told to a a story writer or game dev maybe the things that the aliens care about aren't how humans define their sexualities and gender binaries yeah it's just one of these really weird things where it's like you thought of so much, you thought of a whole world, but that was the thing that was so naturalized and ingrained to you that you didn't even think about changing it. The things that are going to be disruptive to human-alien relations are going to be like, what do you mean your justice system works like this? Or what do you mean you have a caste system? Or what do you mean that you are <laughs> you have dog legs? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what's yeah, the like, situation here? In um, Mass Effect 2 is when Garrus becomes romanceable. And for anybody who hasn't played Mass Effect 2, Garrus is sort of like a bird lizard. He's really hot. He has a really attractive voice. Garrus is everybody, real fuckable. Everybody loves Garrus. There's a whole thing in the romance plot with him, like, where you're, you're, you're allergic to him. You're, like, mildly allergic to, <laughs> to making out with him. And the doctor warns you about it and is like, eh, yeah, uh... Take a Benadryl. To, to, yeah, you're, you might experience some weird reactions. And it's like, but he's straight, though? I'm <laughs> like, this is a situation where he's a bird lizard. And you're telling me that he has such a, such a type with humans... That only the women shepherds are attractive to him? I don't know. It just seems really questionable to me. Not even getting into the fucking Asari, but whatever. It's just like there are multiple people you can date who are allergic to you, and vice versa. I think there's an interesting conversation we had about how humans project their their idea of the gender binary onto aliens mm-hmm. who maybe have some kind of sexual dimorphism going on, and humans are like, that means man and woman, right? But like... The writers are doing that. Yeah. This didn't come to us from space. We thought of it ourselves. (laughs) And and it's just like, you look at our world now in the year 2017, and you look at how much our understanding of gender has changed in the last like 10 years and our like 
constantly intensely evolving vocabulary and you tell me that in 500 years we're gonna just have kind of forgotten that we'll just have reverted to like 1950s understanding of gender we're gonna have uh our character dead name herself in the middle of a conversation with a stranger this is a call out of mass effect andromeda they apparently fixed that in the past they they did they changed the dialogue but yes they had a they had basically a they had a trans character which Props, props yeah. for having a trans character, but at the same time, it's, like, implied that she basically faces the same... She still, like, needs to leave. It's basically implied that she left Earth because she was, like, in in the Andromeda galaxy, I can be myself. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> There's fucking, like, blob aliens and shit, and you have to worry about having to tell people that you're trans and not being treated well because of it, or, not, like, living your truth? Okay. What a crap world. It's just, it's... It's one of those cases where it's really obviously a failure of imagination on the part of the writer and a lack of ability to examine one's own sort of framework, which is really bad for a fantasy writer. Yeah. Kind of bad for any writer. Dude, I call out to myself. I just did the same thing, you know, whenever I started plotting that. Like, I did the same thing. No one yeah. is immune to this, you know, on small and big levels. You just have to turn it over in the light and maybe ask some people, like, is this fucked up? I think this might be fucked up. Did I imbue this with my own preconceived notions? Or did I think that I was telling a story that was subversive and actually just contributed to a problem? Because I see that happen a lot, too. Like, magical, shape-shifting body stuff that is supposed oh, Lord, to be yeah. like, this is a my pet peeve. <sighs> I could talk about that for a while. You could. Can do that. We do have a podcast. <laughs> it's true. No, it is one of my ultimate pet peeves is the idea that shape-shifting is a good metaphor for trans people when it's like kind of a huge fuck you to trans people because it tends to be super binarist. Hey, I changed sexes. That's just like being trans, right? My magical transformation from one body to another. Yeah. That that maps like very specific genders onto those bodies. Like, now I'm a woman because I look like this. Now I'm a man again. That's not the same as trans people. In terms of writing trans narratives where it's like you're giving in these speculative worlds, you're giving trans people magical transition stories that don't exist in real life. And like, that's just got to be a fucking bummer because it misunderstands a lot of trans people's relationships to their body and their experience in the world. But it's also like, that's a fucking bummer. What if you really wanted that? And it's like, here it is in this magical take a potion and you're done. Well, and I will say, I will say like for some trans folks, that's totally what they want. Escapism. I know a lot of trans folks who were really drawn to stories like that because of the kind of possibility that they represented and the way they portrayed identity in that. I think the problem for me is when that's portrayed as like a good metaphor for Mm -hmm. trans experience when it sort of it abstracts away the idea of of transing gender entirely and it it actually makes it about cis people it tends to make it about characters who are just cis all the time no matter what body they're like they change pronouns it's it's the classic like body swapping problem where it's like they're in a new body so uh now they have different pronouns and now that and it's that's that's fine if that's your character but that's not a good or respectful representation of trans people. There are trans people who use different pronouns depending on the day. There are gender fluid people. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I've had to talk to a lot of authors about you have this character depending on what their body looks like, changing their internal sense of self. I feel like your internal sense of self would would remain pretty much the same. It just, it tends to be a really a massive oversimplification of 
gender too. It, it tends to boil gender down to your junk. I mean, that's yeah. basically what it does. And then is like trans, and I'm like, no, <laughs> uh, uh-uh. no, that's that's kind of. Let me put it this way: it's not what I want cis people to write. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's not what I want cis people to write and then be like, look at me, I've represented what gender fluidity is. Mm-hmm. A certain amount of the people who are going to be reading that are trans and a certain amount of people who are going to be reading it are cis. The trans people may be harmed by your representation, but also the cis people will just internalize it as like, oh, this is what trans is. It will confirm some of their assumptions or give them new ones. It's not that I don't trust the intentions of people. It's that I, I don't think that that is the story that cis people need to tell. What I would really like to see more of is I like the idea of there being room for transition stories in fantasy, but I would love to see them more mirror how transitioning works IRL for humans. <laughs> um, I would love to see, for example, like the equivalent of taking HRT, but it's a potion or yeah. it's a pact with some kind of entity or something like that. So that there's there is something that is genuinely drawn from contemporary trans reality that makes it into a metaphor that actually represents something real and that isn't so abstracted away. I would love for something that shows sort of the possibilities of transformation, but that doesn't turn it into this snap your fingers and now you're a new gender kind of thing. It it makes me really uncomfortable to read about sort of magical transformations that don't feel connected to the way trans people experience them in contemporary life. It just does. It makes me feel like Uh, So that's what you think of as sort of the ideal, is that you just basically swap idealized cis bodies, and it has nothing to do with validating all kinds of bodies or with people being valid no matter what. It also really um, shits on intersex people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's just, it's basically like, just super, super binary, just kind of in general. I don't think I've ever seen a version of that that doesn't also get into like, and the soft womanly curves, and then the hard masculine body. You know, it tends to be just kind of super, even for cis people, really binary and stereotypical. (laughs) Do we want to talk about the reasons why audiences may be precluded from embracing fantasy? Yes. Romance audiences in particular. And I said before that it's partially the length and partially uh, if you're reading really high fantasy, you have to be ready to ingest a lot of from the ground up world building. But I also think that it's just the the stigma of the genre. Yeah, because I I was going to say we... I like the the way you wrote this out is like fantasy and specfic is not, is said at least to not sell as well as contemporary. Why our audience is not there. And it's important to note that that's like that's just in terms of romance though. Yeah. Fantasy sells. Fantasy sells in its own genre quite well. Yeah. Um I will say it's one of those genres much like romance where it is relegated to its own shelf. Hmm. There is very little fantasy in mainstream fiction shelves because that's just that's how we categorize things, but people who read sci-fi tend to read sci-fi and people who read litfic tend to read litfic and people who read um fantasy tend to read fantasy or at least that's the 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 sort of assumed I think I remember hearing that at GRNW one one year is like, look, people who read contemporary don't tend to walk into, um, you know, fantasy or sci-fi and people want those things kind of want to do like a quiz, to, uh, you know, a poll to find out if that's true, because I read almost everything. If something strikes me as interesting or if an author I like recommends it or writes it, I will read contemporary. I'll read stuff that I don't think I would like on the surface. I think, too, like there's a perception of fantasy that like you won't get it if you don't read fantasy. Yeah. Maybe your perception of fantasy is that it's all about elves and dragons and you 
have never read Tolkien and you never got into Lord of the Rings and all that stuff and that's just not your world I could see it being for some people reading the back of a book that's like gay elves is gonna be like oh my god yes I have to read this yes and for some people that are like put it back on for somebody who doesn't read fantasy they'd probably be like why why what's why it's interesting too because not all fiction winds up having quite those stark lines like young adult for example doesn't actually divide between fantasy, sci-fi, contemporary. It's all YA. Something like Harry Potter that has clear, like, mass appeal, even though got tons of world building. Yeah, I guess it, it makes me sad when that we have such strictly dividing lines in adult genres, and I feel like queer romance is an interesting place because it has so many subgenres and the lines are a little blurrier. But I wish they were blurrier still. For every Kirby Crow, Scarlet and the White Wolf, which is a really popular, um, I don't remember if it's a trilogy or four, sorry, Kirby. Um, you have that, which actually did quite well. Um, and then you have like something steampunk, right? Those people are all in the same circle. They're all in this, they're all in the same sphere. All of these people writing these vastly different stories who might categorize themselves differently, but they're all published by people who are known for queer romance. Oh, you know what I wanted to talk about before we, I guess, went any further? <laughs> Chuck Tingle. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dimitri on Twitter um, asked our take on the sad puppies fiasco. The fiasco, the Hugo which I read the full history of. It went back further than I thought. Yeah, me too. I thought I knew everything about it and I was fucking wrong. Yeah. So for folks who are not familiar with that, the sad puppies and the rabid puppies were a coalition of shitty dudes. Um, <laughs> you have my take already. Hot um, takes. It was garbage. Uh, anyway, um, it was a coalition that set out to avenge itself upon the Hugo Awards for being too liberal by taking over their voting process and getting basically themselves nominated for awards. It was started by a dude who wanted his own books to be nominated for Hugos, which <sighs> maybe you should write better books. I don't know. That might be <laughs> a better way to I win I feel a like the, the way to win awards is not to put yourself in the nominating body and like <laughs> give yourself just... the ability. Yeah. Let so other people decide. It was, there were several years where they were able to like grow their voting block within the Hugo uh, nominations and, and voter voter base enough to get a bunch of books nominated purely on the merits of that group deciding that they wanted to nominate them. And in, I think it was 2015, they, they almost like swept the nominations. They got a bunch of, a lot of junk that was not supposed to be there nominated, yeah. including as a joke, nominating a Chuck Tingle book. Do we remember which one it was? I do not remember which one it was. I'm going to Google it. I do it. remember that Chuck Tingle, who is a cool dude, responded by saying, okay, if I win the award, Zoe Quinn will be presenting it because <sighs> deep sigh of somebody who works in video games uh, <laughs> uh, when he's not writing romance novels, there were deep ties between the sad puppies and Gamergate. So these are two movements that are deeply just up Shitty. basically upset with any any presence of diversity in their industries and are doing their best to stamp it out at all costs so that was why zoe quinn who is a high profile target of gamergate in the games industry chuck tingle was like zoe quinn will be accepting my reward at the hugos if you get me to win a hugo which did not happen no i'm sad about that every day that would have been like the, the best of the worlds. But yes, my my take on it is that 
it's just kind of pathetic when they managed to severely fuck up the Hugo Awards one year. They fully admitted that it had always just been about a fuck you to the Hugos because they weren't getting nominated. I just I highly doubt that their their books were very good to begin with. I have to say the the kinds of authors who are usually out there screaming like it's because of the liberals and the women and the gays that I'm not getting the success that I should be. There's other reasons why you're not getting success. Yeah, and they were they were yelling about like the quality of some of the books they deemed as like too liberal or like oh, they only got nominated because they were liberal or issues books or whatever. And it's like, look, if we want to have a discussion about how the Hugo Awards have favored, um, you know, for the years they've favored male authors and they've favored not liberal books or if we want to talk about like nepotism or something like that's one thing <laughs> it's about nepotism in the publishing <laughs> i take it back it's not about nepotism but yeah if we want to like have a, a, a top-down conversation about how the hugo awards are structured and like maybe there are things to fix like that's one thing and it's another to be like this liberal bullshit and all these women and i don't believe that a woman could write a good book the controversy does continue but it isn't making um, headlines anymore because everyone just decided collectively that they were exhausted by it and it was stupid. But uh, one of my one of the things that I need to bring up is the fact that Chuck Tingle's Hugo nominated work was called Space Raptor Butt Invasion. Good. <laughs> and um, if you don't know who Chuck Tingle is, which if you're listening to this podcast, I sure as sweet hell hope that you do. Chuck Tingle is an angel sent to us from above. Chuck Tingle writes a lot of sort of surrealist erotica, gay erotica, uh, like short stories and novellas. He, he tends to take elements that you might see like a lot of uh, gay erotica that you'll find on like Kindle or Kindle Unlimited is like fucked in the ass by my boss or <laughs> like that time I got pounded by a merman or something like that. Like it's a little bit, it's got elements of fantasy or surrealism, but it's pretty straightforward. Like just people being like, I'm really into merman fucking. I'm going to read this. Chuck Tingle takes that and like layers it on top of it. Fucked in the boss, fucked in the boss. Yep. <laughs> That would be surreal. Fucked in the ass by my boss who's an airplane or like I'm a ceiling fan who had an affair with my existential crisis. Very strange, honestly, really inventive stuff. And I frankly think that Chuck Tangle deserves a Hugo nomination. <laughs> now we're, now I'm just getting petty, but I was looking at um, Fox Day's list of Hugo nominations and feeling happy that they have all ultimately, ultimately been voted lower than no award in the category that they were nominated in. <laughs> His his works include uh, a book called SJWs Always Lie, Taking Down the Thought Police. So, oh, so he swallowed seven red pills. <laughs> yeah, he's he's you know like a gamer gator white supremacist. Anyway. Uh, my take is that he sucks. So yeah, Chuck Tingle is one of those where I admire his like strange subversion of queer erotica tropes, but also the fact that he's managing to write honestly cool speculative fiction about fucking like dinosaurs and <laughs> his own Hugo nomination. Like he's... <laughs> Like, he's brilliant and a really cool dude. And if you have time, you should go look him up and, and read the sort of almost conspiracy theory, theory level, like attempts to guess if he's a real person and how much of this is um, marketing versus not. And I tend to think not because this is some serious dedication. Also, he's making a game with Zoe Quinn. Yes. Which I'm so excited about. <laughs> so... I feel like I, I missed the opportunity to have a nuanced conversation about the sad puppies, but uh, just again, as somebody whose day job 
<laughs> until very recently, and still actually to a degree, is in yeah. video games. I have nothing good to say about Gamer Gators at any point. I have nothing to say about people co-opting a legitimate process to air their grievances in that way, especially when they're like relatively privileged. Yep. Like, I'm mad because the liberals are getting their inferior works nominated in my beautiful treatise on the way the white man is treated in space. Isn't that? <laughs> Just like I know very, very, very few good writers who spend more time complaining about people not appreciating their writing than they do writing. I feel like it's a really good indication that you aren't good at your job. You can't game the system. Like, e even yeah. if you think the system is unfair, like, sabotaging it. I, I say that like I'm a person who has respect for institutions. I don't. But <laughs> I feel like the, the the most constructive use of your time is just to keep making art rather than being petty. So, yeah. So, uh, in conclusion... <laughs> in conclusion, you once wrote a song fic about how dear dying. How dare you... <laughs> In conclusion, I, regret, I also wrote that. I regret it. not a minute that my probably 10-year-old self spent weeping. Pounding that um, out. Listening to probably Celine Dion while watching clips of How Dear over and over no, again. No, is that a joke? Because I, I earnestly love Celine Dion. And if we also love Celine Dion on some I level. I loved Celine Dion when I was 10. <sighs> That's not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> I listened I to a lot of Celine Dion when I was 10 and now cannot listen to Celine Dion anymore. You Actually younger than that. I started listening to Celine Dion when I was quite young and I still, I mean, I don't listen to Celine Dion on the regular, but occasionally I'm like, I gotta have moments. Doesn't going. Celine Dion sing uh, My Heart Will Go On? Yes, you pee on. Yes. Okay. I was, I was pretty sure. Anyway, I uh, used God. to sing that when I was a very small child, nonstop. And that is why, out of a mixture of overexposure and embarrassment, I can't listen to Celine Dion anymore. So if you want to if you want to talk <laughs> embarrassment, I used to play Celine Dion albums, starting with um, uh, the I think it's the colors of my the color of my love. I don't remember. But I used to listen to it so incessantly and sing along start to finish with all my cassette tapes that my family fucking hated me. <laughs> and they attempted to ban Celine Dion from my life. And I was a little rebel. And yeah, I feel really bad in retrospect for the amount of times that my family had to hear me just violently singing along with it's all coming back to me now, but whatever, they can deal with it. Still love Celine Dion. I think she's still performing in Vegas. And if she is, I need to figure out if I can get down there. Celine Dion. Uh, in conclusion, uh, if you would like to stalk Amanda, just <laughs> hang out in... Celine Dion chat rooms? Yeah. <laughs> if you want to talk to me about Celine Dion, you can find me on Go Twitter. Go to every Celine Dion <laughs> concert you can. Uh, eventually, you'll find you'll find Amanda me there weeping. There. Yep. So if you wanna if you wanna talk to us about your own feelings about gay elves or how pissed off you are that now you have my heart will go on stuck in your head. Um, if you would like to continue the conversation on Twitter, <laughs> as always, I am at Austin Chanted. I am at Amanda H. Jean. I will be putting some show notes up uh, with s some of the authors. Actually, I hope all of the authors and books that I've mentioned. And I will also include some others that I think are important to the industry. There you go. That's been our show. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much.
Bye. This episode of The Hopeless Romantic was produced by Daria DeFora and Amanda Jean, with art by Kesey Young and music by Carly Ann Warden. If you want to continue the conversation, follow us on Twitter at The HR Podcast, follow us on Facebook, check out our Patreon, and please rate and review on iTunes if you enjoyed.